<laughs> you didn't you didn't practice uh, demon summoning and <laughs> no no unfortunately that's not covered that came later hey there i'm jordan and i'm nick we're just two regular guys who love talking about film and now we'd like to talk to you we decided to break down our discussions into three parts. Because everyone loves a gimmick. We discuss our expectations for a film before we watch it. That's take one. We give our immediate thoughts following the film. That's take two. And finally, we research the film at length to prepare for an informed and in-depth discussion. And that's take three. So if you love film even half as much as we do, join in on the conversation. This is take three, a movie podcast. Take one. I'm very, very, very apprehensive about what we are about to do. I'm going to tell the story about when we saw it, okay? Okay. <laughs> so I, we were going to some art exhibit in D.C., and we had met in Alexandria, and it was like we were going to go the next day in, into D.C. And then I, we were like, well, what do you want to do? And so we went to... Um, the movies. We went to. We were like, "Oh, let's go see Hereditary," and you. We go in there and don't really know what to expect. I mean, it's, it's certainly been marketed as you know a dark horror movie, and then you're sitting there for a little bit. Nothing's really too scary, you know. It's <laughs> it's sort of just eerie. It's very weird. It's very a twenty four. Very a twenty four. Yes. <laughs> and then the the driving head scene happens if you have not seen this movie i'm about to pretty much spoil the biggest part of it so go watch yeah. the movie yeah um, but her head comes off and then you we're all just in shock i don't think a movie has affected me quite like that scene did yeah. that was no it's because they they lead it up with such a her allergy her allergy when she's sitting in the backseat writhing that just it it chills me to my core like no other horror movie has ever done before and then and then it happens and it's just like you're sitting there stunned like did did i did we we just watch that happen like that that actually just happened exactly and like he goes back home and he lays in bed he can't even believe it like he the sun cannot process what just happened, I guess. Yeah. And then you just off screen, but audibly hear Tony Collette's reaction to it. Just wailing. Yeah. And then they're at a funeral. And I remember looking at you and I was like, I want to leave. I want to leave this movie theater. I cannot believe this just happened. Like I yeah. want to go. I was shaking. I was yeah. literally shaking. And so like I feel like anyone who talks about this movie like that's the scene that they want to talk about it's really not like yeah it's, I don't know it's, it's funny it's, it's the go-to moment it's, it, it's not necessarily like literally the inciting incident I guess you would say maybe that's the grandma passing away but that that's sort of like is where the movie begins you know what I mean yeah. like that's really sort of what it all um, is spiraling out of control after. Right, right. And very soon after that moment, you get hooked. Oh, yeah. I I wanted to do a more popular movie, and it was between this one and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And yeah. unfortunately, I won't say unfortunately, because I do love this movie, but I do not want to ever watch it again, yeah. to be honest. When this one, I was like, oh, no, this means I have to watch it again. And So y'all voted for this. Uh, yes, we had yes. a Facebook, Twitter, Instagram polls, and... Not necessarily a landslide, but like by a discernible amount, this beat Spider Verse. 
Yeah. yeah. So I really, really hope you all are happy. Yeah. And I also think, um, like, I, I don't think we'd ever put a movie on a poll that we wouldn't consider doing. So oh, no, of course. Yeah. So, like, don't give up hope because we, we will do Spider-Man eventually. <laughs> also, don't think that we're, like, dreading this. Like, this is this is an incredible movie. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. And uh, much in the style of A24 movies, I feel like this is dripping with metaphors and themes that we yeah. can explore. And I feel like this goes much deeper than, you know, what you see. And I'm I'm really excited to to look into that. I think definitely it'd be fun. Yeah. As disturbing as this movie is. One of the most underrated performances I've ever witnessed. I mean, Tony Collette like killed it. She deserved an Oscar nomination. Like I I think that that if this movie was not a violent horror movie, like I think it could have totally done that. You know, I mean, this is, this is one of the, best performances in any genre that I've seen in a very long time. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm really stoked. Yeah. Same. You ready? I mean, as ready as I'll ever be. This will probably (laughs) be the last time I ever watch this movie. Day two. I'm like so much more deeply disturbed this time around for some reason. I don't like, I've seen this movie. I saw it in theaters and then like maybe once or twice to like show it to my family. <laughs> what a great, Hey guys, let's sit down as yeah. a family and watch this movie. I think just to show it to my parents and see what their reaction was. But I don't know, like sitting down and watching this with no distractions. It's like, and we're, we're listening to this with headphones in. Yeah. So, so you can hear so much more. You can hear like, there's like these, uh, this like pulsing, bass in the background for some parts and it really just it sounds like a car that's listening to really loud music is driving yeah. by outside and he's just going down and doing loops and you can yeah. just constantly hear it i honestly thought that's what it was and then i took my headphones out and i'm like oh my god this is part of the movie and just that ending with with the statue i mean i'm one of those like you know freedom of religion type of people you do you <laughs> but oh my god that's so scary like that is terrifying the only thing that I kept thinking of since I've seen this movie at some point, it came back into my mind and I read this article where there was, I guess somebody who was well-versed in this stuff saying that them making payment in particular, someone who like calls for the beheading of people isn't a real thing. Like it seems, they said it seems sort of a random choice to make him of all people, the one that wants you to cut off like that, cut off people's heads. That's not necessarily part of what is real about this demon. However, if you believe in that sort of stuff, he is one of the actual like listed demons. There's this book called like the key of Solomon. We'll get into it. I'll, I'll I'll do a little bit more research. I think it's something about Solomon and it lists out all these demons. It's sort of like a Pokedex of demons is what they (laughs) refer to it as. I'm not kidding. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> it, it lists him and he's a effeminate man riding a camel. I'm just so uncomfortable right yeah. now. I don't want to go to bed. It's like three o'clock in the morning and I'm, I don't want to go to bed. I will be watching something else before I go to bed tonight. Happy stuff. Happy stuff. You know, okay. I know where we end up. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I understand how we, how we got there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Same, same. And watching it now with the purpose of researching and analyzing it. Studying, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, yeah. it definitely puts it in a different perspective. And Tony Collette's character, 
fluctuates quite a bit. I think she has um, a lot of character development in this, and I'm I'm eager to to figure out what exactly because I'm I'm a little bit confused about the journey as well. There's there's some things that weren't completely clear for sure. And a lot of times, like research is just like something we use to enhance our experience, where you know we learn little facts or you know, studying specific beats or trying to make sense of an, an allegory or something. But here I almost, I feel like I need someone to just be like, this is what was happening this yeah. entire time. Yeah. Because I think if you see it as Paimon, Paimon, whatever, the, uh, the demon was in Charlie until, you know, she gets killed. <laughs> yeah. Um, then I don't necessarily like if, if that was already if it was always the plan to just go into Peter, then I don't know I don't know a hundred percent why the seance stuff was necessarily needed. Not not Joan's inclusion, because I get that she's the one that sort of like I guess does whatever at the end to make make it go into Peter, mm-hmm. but you know, the talking to Charlie aspect of it. That right. I don't know if that sort of means anything. Basically, I just don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. And I think there were aspects of this movie that I wasn't too thrilled with. I remember the first time I saw it, I remember like the first half after everything that happened in the car with the initial accident. I was like, damn, this is like raw. This is very uncomfortable. But then like it made me question when she started like crawling on the ceiling and stuff. Like I was like, oh, is that necessary? You and I have had a ton of conversations about this and how the the horror genre, the movies like The Conjuring and, you know, Annabelle we've had these conversations but like I, I i definitely think there needs to be a shift in the horror genre and there are a lot of tropes in the horror genre that i'm really not a fan of that come up once in a while in this movie but i think the beginning and the end kind of solidify this as a favorite of mine yeah I think, for sure well i know that one thing that you consistently say about the horror of today is that it's very tropey and and honestly yes the reason why is that they are techniques that are, you know, surefire ways to unsettle and unnerve people, you know? So when this movie sort of like takes that last little bit where it's a hair chasing him around and there's a bunch of jump scares and things, yes, it does sort of feel different, but because this whole movie had been such a slow burn, it ramping up to an 11 at the end and becoming a bit of a James Wan movie, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm okay with that. I mean, I don't get me wrong. The Conjuring is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. I think it's a masterpiece. And I will fight anyone verbally and <laughs> physically who thinks that they disagree. I don't I, – I understand what you mean when you always say that, like, horror can be done in such a way that it seems new and fresh. Even if you're taking tropey ideas, which are – there are a lot of, you know, the idea of a seance, the idea of – Uh, Being in a classroom and everything sort of is laid out in front of the characters before it happens. That happens in like so many movies. It happened in Halloween. I – yeah. yeah. (laughs) All three of them. It's not just having tropes because there's nothing new under the sun. Things get repeated because they are – useful and are good ways for people to be able to get their point across in certain aspects. Of course. But this movie, I feel like its strengths lie in performances and the willingness to just go there. The willingness to like yeah. be like, okay, 
there is nothing we will not do. I mean, killing someone who we kind of thought was probably going to be one of the main characters Mm -hmm. 20, 30 minutes in, and it also being a 13-year-old, like, very violently, we see their head, like, it just just seems like at that moment it puts you in a sort of like, oh, wow, they will do anything. And by the end of it, everyone's dead, and everyone's died very terrifyingly on camera. You know what I mean? Like, well, I, I think that's what's successful about it. I think there were times, like there was, it was the scene when kind of, when Charlie's kind of walking through the house and it's set up, like you think there's going to be a million jump scares because in scenes like this, there typically always is a million yeah. jump scares. And I think there's maybe one. And I think that was so successful because it kept you on edge waiting to jump mm-hmm. and, and you, it, you just didn't, it just, nothing happened. And I mean, things happened obviously, but, and it was still scary. I just think, I don't know. I, I have a weird relationship with horror movies, but this one I, is definitely one of my top favorite for sure. What is interesting about this and A24 movies in general is that they very often subvert expectations. It, it almost feels like they're made by a collective of weirdos that are like, like, yeah. oh, I'm going to make this strange movie. And I don't, I don't know exactly. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough about the company to say like, that's exactly what happens, but they definitely have <laughs> producers that seek out projects that are like, bizarre you know what i mean like, yeah i mean i've i've not i've seen maybe like three percent of all of the a24 movies but the ones that i have seen seem very familiar and similar in like tone and but not to the point where it's it you know not any of them come across stale but just the fact that it's like no. the same like you can appreciate the same mentality we just watched the killing of a sacred deer the other night it was like one of the first Ugh. movies that we had watched together that we were not doing for the podcast and what feels like forever. <laughs> and that movie, I mean, it makes you feel like you just had a gunshot went off in your face at the end. Like it is, <laughs> it is, uh, yes, <laughs> it is devastating. And the, I think that's like kind of what they do best to be honest with you. And I think, I think that's why I love these so much is because they kind of are breaking the boundaries of horror. It's, it's just a new style of horror that I think is very successful. I think that there is room for all different kinds of horror, and I'm happy that these movies seem to be made, you know, on obviously substantial enough budgets to where they are beautiful set design, and you know, they don't look cheap. They're not found footage movies. They're they feel very highbrow, but Mm -hmm. they're not particularly mainstream because what what James Wan and the Conjuring universe does is they make movies that are accessible to a wider audience and are scary in our horror movies, but they're going to make mm-hmm. a lot of money. It was very interesting how I would, you would consider a 24 an indie company. I think it's very sort of, I don't want to call it independent, but like it's very, uh, they, they have definitely like an indie feel to them. They're a smaller distributor. Right. And hereditary was one that kind of broke out. It kind of, I feel like Hereditary was huge. It was immensely popular when yeah, it first came yeah. out. When it comes to their horror fair, Hereditary has been what's been the best Number for one. them. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that. Got a lot of hype. Everyone was crazy about it when it came out. They seem to have gotten more success with, you know, their dramatic movies like Lady Bird and the Disaster Artist and stuff like that. But that's just to be expected because the horror movies are widely unappreciated when it comes to a lot of people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And and this is this stuff is not for everybody. Like these like hereditary, I know so many people that I would would never show this movie to. <laughs> I really I'm 
I kind of was surprised that this was the one that got picked. <laughs> I'm glad it was, but I'm surprised because, again, this just, just does not come across like a crowd pleaser. Yeah, yeah. I will say that this was a much more intimate viewing, being so close to it, being able to hear everything and really kind of analyzing everything. It, uh, I'm not sure that I will watch this one. This is not something that you sit down for a nice leisurely evening. No, yeah, this isn't a party movie. Like, you invite everybody. No. no. It's just that constant dread that sort of builds. Mm. And what is so – it's not fun. It's not enjoyable. It's like no. – <laughs> it's just – it's it's well-made and yeah. it's a mystery that unravels pretty interestingly – with brilliant performances and beautiful set design. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I agree completely. You have anything else to say? I don't think so. I'm, yeah, I need a, <laughs> I need a long break from, from that. Take three. I dug so deep. I'm a hereditary expert now. Are you? Um, probably not, but um, I know a lot about it. I gotta say, I probably know less than I did at the beginning of this. <laughs> I'm like, ugh. Every time I thought that I had sort of like understood something, something else came up and I was like, okay, maybe I don't get that. This movie is confusing. Yeah, but it certainly takes more than I'll say three times to like, to get it. Yeah. And I would recommend doing so, even though I probably will never, ever <laughs> again, but... Like, the more I research this film, I realize that I've actually got some problems with it. Like, really? Yeah. Not because of what I found, but because of what I did not find. I found no explanation or rational reason for Payman to need all of this, like, hoopla done for him when he's seemingly able to jump around to members of this family regardless. Like, he jumps into Peter after Joan coaxes Peter out of his own body when he's outside the school, when he's, like, at the lunch table or whatever. He jumps into Annie after her husband is burned alive in front of her. And if we're to believe that that blue light is like traveling around is, is payment, then he's like regularly moving around and in and out of Charlie. Like the story can't have like all these unsettling moments if they contradict each other. In my opinion, it feels like this like dark, beautiful, fascinating puzzle, but it's got like 10 extra pieces and, I don't know what to do with those 10 extra pieces. I think the whole point, though, was to, like, kind of eliminate any kind of interference. Yeah, it just made it just made it seem like if you're going to if you can jump around to whoever, then just jump into Peter and call it a day. Like, yeah, but then you still have to deal with the dad that could like, oh, my son is fucking possessed by a demon. You still have. Um, the mother, you still have the daughter, like you have all these factors that could. It didn't really seem like it was ever targeting the dad only like at the very end, but. Well, but to be fair, the dad wasn't really that big of a threat. So his, his death was pretty easy. <laughs> and he's like, it makes sense that he's not necessarily like in the line of fire. Cause he's not blood related to. Right. You know, that sort of that family right. married into this clusterfuck. Yeah. But like, what else though? I'm I'm curious. <laughs> then I find this article that Ari Aster or Ari Aster or whatever the hell this the director's name is, he's quoted as describing the film as a conspiracy movie without exposition, 
told from the perspective of the people being conspired against, which is cool, right? And but that it, then he says like, and that ultimately you're given shards and fragments of the whole story. And I'm like, which sure, yeah, adds to the mystique of the film, but it kind of makes this process really fucking hard. What do you mean this process? <laughs> like trying to make sense of it, trying to do take three. Oh. <laughs> I mean, certainly he has no idea that we're doing this, but like. But uh, I disagree because I have a whole three pages I'm, of answers. I'm so like, glad. And I normally am like so into just trying to make sense of like a mystery and and understand things better. But for some reason, this episode, this movie, I just, I felt like every idea I had or thing that was brought up, I'm like, well, I could refute that very easily. It doesn't really necessarily make sense. I feel like almost a little defeated on this one. Oh, that makes me sad. Yeah, well, no, what I'm thinking is, though, is that you're going to help me more than any of this research did. Well, I hope so, because I hope it's that and not I'm going to bring up all these points and you're just going to shoot them down one by one. (laughs) Like, Because that's very much, that's very possible. And if that's the case, then that just needs to be done because I don't know. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I I definitely think that we'll have a, a very good discussion about this, but... I could see you you helping my view of this movie a lot. Awesome. Yeah. And then Ari Aster says that Charlie has been possessed since the moment she was born. I read that and I'm like, if that's the case, then why? You read that? Yeah. And like Payman's acting like a little scared little kid a lot. Like I, that's – it's just it, – like Ari Aster said that. Okay, but – uh, I feel like there's maybe a little bit of wiggle room there because I feel like could he mean like straight out the womb or like when she was born, like the grandmother took grasped hold of her and then that's kind of when no, she put payment. My point is that like clearly it was done to her after she was born, but like when she was very young. But what I'm saying is is that like if she's been possessed this whole time, why is she still acting like – like a scared little girl. Like what? I don't. Maybe she's not scared. Maybe she's just kind of. I don't know. It's, it's like who's <laughs> gonna take care of me? It's like I guess I sort of see this as like. Do you remember in Goblet of Fire when Voldemort kind of comes out of the cauldron, or he gets dropped into the cauldron? He's like this tiny little baby. Uh huh. He's adorable. Yeah, and he gets dropped into the cauldron, and then he kind of emerges as this like full-grown adult thing, and he gets his. He gets his cloak and everything. Like maybe he just maybe Pyman just needed some time. Payment. I should know by now how to pronounce that, but no, I, I can understand that. I'm making excuses though. I don't. I don't know. That's just. I don't know. I, I see where you're coming from. Though. Yeah. Although you know, like if he was really in, is in control, then I guess that answers the question that I had sort of been thinking of like this whole time, which is. How the hell is this satanic cult able to orchestrate Charlie's death so perfectly? And it's like if he's, you know, in control yeah. of her, then of course she'll stick her head out at the right time and they'll know to put the deer in the road. But like if it, uh, let her let Charlie slit her wrists in her bed. Why why all this bomb and circumstance? Oh my god. If they're trying to kill her? Because because without that big moment. I kind of go into this discussion a little bit later about um, Annie's involvement in all of this and her kind of downfall. And I feel like the actions leading up to 
the conclusion of this movie are all about sort of um, pulling the strings and eliminating the family dynamic and kind of controlling Annie's downward spiral. And, and I think maybe that was just a way to, it was a device, I guess. Yeah. Does that make sense? I don't know. I, that, and I also sort of have to take a step back and think, okay, you could sort of argue away a lot of big set pieces in movies. And it's like, why is it there? Well, a lot of the times it's because if it wasn't there, you know, you wouldn't have a, 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 a very big, important part of your movie. Yeah, there'd be yeah. no movie. Why? Right. You know, I wish I could think of one right now. But it's like, why didn't they just do this? Well, if they there wouldn't be a film, you know? Yeah. And I think it's so weird that you're actually bringing this up because I feel like I have that mentality a lot. And it I think it's sort of a detriment, in my opinion. Like, I, I don't like that about myself because um, it kind of removes me from good movies. Cough, cough, maybe The Shining. And... I think like it's it's not a good way to enjoy a movie, and it's it's interesting that our pers- our perspectives have kind of swapped. This is you're normally the one who's like trying to build me up and try to yeah yeah, and it's funny because like I'm normally about like oh it's part of the movie it's in you know it's in the script to a degree there has to be some suspension of disbelief. For some reason in this movie, the fact that I can't necessarily like sort of reason it all out bugs me. And it's like, I know I should just like shut up and watch the movie, but I no, I mean, it's I, just, I don't think, well, I mean, I think you're justified. Agree, like, I think th- there, there are always calls for some suspension of disbelief. And like, there are parts where if you nitpick a movie to death, no matter what, you're going to find something that doesn't necessarily work, you know? I don't know. I like, okay, so like, one thing that I saw a lot of, places is how the filmmakers reacted to the theory of this being sort of one giant manifestation of Annie's mental illness. Mm -hmm. And they spoke against it saying that like the ending is literal. It really happens in the film. It's not like her dreaming it or something, but that's not to say that Annie didn't really like suffer from mental illness. I was thinking like, I mean, she clearly was traumatized by her upbringing and then like Moments that you think are being brought on by the demon storyline wind up really seeming just like results of the trauma because like the sleepwalking and trying to burn Peter and Charlie thing, that clearly wasn't the work of the cult or payment because like why would they want to kill Peter? But then I'm thinking like, oh shit, that totally could have been the work of Pyman of the Cult because it could have been an effort to drive them away from each other, to drive Peter away from Annie. And that's, that's really what happened, you know, which speaks back to the whole, like trying to tear this family apart. Like, I think, I think that was the, the main intention the whole time. Yeah. For me, at least I'm having trouble sort of putting this together. So for right now, I have a couple of more points, but we'll get into them later. Help me. (laughs) I think you're justified in what you're thinking. I don't think that what you're saying is incorrect. Um, but yeah, let me, I'm going to go through some of the points that I have and maybe, maybe we can change your mind. Um, what I realized in my search uh, for meaning in this movie is that literally every single detail in this movie is spelled out for us and we just had to pay attention. Like there were so many hidden details that I never caught on to 
after watching it, this is, I guess this is my third time watching it, and like it, it still blew my mind. Um, first of all, um, there were you would say that there were like three heads removed in the film. Like there's there's a clear theme of beheading here. Um, I counted four if you include the bird, which I thought was interesting. Like that was clearly intentional. Yeah. Um, the fact that she was cutting beheading the bird. This was a very interesting point in the opening credits. There's an obituary for uh, I think her name's Ellen. Uh, they called her Queen Lee. Annie, her daughter, had a brother. So she had a daughter and a son. Her brother's name was Charlie as well. Her, his brother, her brother's name was Charles. And if you remember the conversation that she had when she was in the support circle, she was saying, uh, my mother was schizophrenic. Uh, my brother was found... Uh, he committed suicide. He hung himself, he, yeah. Right, and in his suicide note, he said, my mom is trying to put like, put people inside mm-hmm. of my body. So there's this interesting kind of like maybe Charlie and Peter were not the first attempts for this. Like maybe they have been trying this whole time. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, and, and Charlie wanted out. He's like, I'm not, <laughs> this is clearly, or the first Charles, I guess, just he stopped it before it could continue. Yeah, and you like that, and the fact that the father starved himself to death too. Like I would almost there's nothing explicitly pointing to that, but like the their sort of mysterious, untimely deaths both sort of beg the question. It's like, uh, what was she doing to them too? You know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, exactly. And um, clearly, there's again, there's this this dynamic of you know, pulling apart families and, and, um, kind of playing the puppeteer, like playing with dolls in a miniature doll. Exactly. There you go. (laughs) So I I love that kind of stuff. I wish, you know, I wish it was all that and the story made sense. I mean, I don't know. Some weird trivia. This was a stretch. I think, um, I wasn't quite sure if this was accurate, but I thought it was interesting. Um, Charles the first, he was a King in England who was, uh, decapitated. So that's, I think, where that name was inspired or could have been inspired. Um, And Peter was one of the 12 apostles. He was the founder of the Roman church. And he was known for being crucified upside down. Mm -hmm. Like he requested to be crucified upside down because he felt he wasn't worthy to be crucified the same way as Jesus. Jesus was, yeah. Oh, you knew that already, didn't you? Yeah, I went to Bible school for 14 years. I certainly did. You did. Uh, Another one of my points, uh, you brought this up beautifully. Um, the dollhouse was a representation of how really none of these characters have any control over what's happening to them, regardless of how much they try to take it into their own hands. Um, and this is very, very clear when Annie is trying to show her husband, uh, the burning book and then he catches on fire. She's like, she has this sacrificial moment of, um, let me throw this in the, like, you have to throw this in the fire. Like I have to sacrifice myself. And then, and then, the, uh, the husband just catches fire. It's like, uh, no, <laughs> like, like they, they try to take responsibility and fate's like, nah, I got this. Like <laughs> you ain't, you don't have any say in this. Exactly. And the scene after the first funeral, right before the family walks into this house, um, someone mentioned that, oh, it's like, there's like this light rumble before they walk into the door. And that's when, uh, her body was moved. That's when like the people of the cult put the, put the mother's body in the attic. And I was like, uh, that's, that seems like kind of a stretch, but let me rewind and go back to it. And I did, it is not subtle at all. Like there is very clear, like rumbling in the background. And it kind of made me like, oh my God, they, this, I think like, I've actually believed this. That's really cool. Yeah. It was, it was, 
Yeah. And like, I think maybe a couple of scenes after that's when Annie sees her mom in, in that room. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was, that's really awesome. Like I, I, I love the fact that they have references to the cult even that early on. Cause I know that the, the smiling guy is, yeah. is there when she's looking at her grandma and the, and Charlie's looking at her grandma or whatever, she's looking down at, yeah. or the, the smiling guy's yeah. looking down at Charlie. Cause I guess mm-hmm. payment is inside of her at that point. <laughs> I like that type of stuff. That is really neat to go back yeah. and be like, huh? You should actually, it's on Amazon prime. If you have prime, it's free to watch and you should go, you should scroll to the point right before the funeral. You will, you would definitely hear something. And it's interesting because at first I was like, Oh, but that could very easily be explained by maybe that's just them walking on like their deck porch or something. But then I kind of rewound, I don't know, re rewound, right? Rewound. Yeah. I, I went back a little bit and I looked at their porch and it's not really like, it looks like cement steps. Like it doesn't really look like it was it was kind of crazy actually. So like once we're done this, I'll sh- I'll show it to you. It's really oh cool. cool, yeah, no, I I totally believe you, and I believe that like with this much care sort of being put into sort Everything. of laying the foundation of foreshadowing and these little hints that you know he's yeah. laying the the groundwork. I totally believe something like that would is intentional. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of speculation about an alternate ending. Um, where at the very end, after everything is announced and revealed, uh, Peter kind of uh, gouges his eyes out after being crowned, which would make sense um, with, I believe it was uh, Charlie's drawings when Annie walked into the room and the notebook's yeah. kind of like drawing itself. And also I think he found a picture upstairs with um, his his eyes poked out. I'm kind of glad that they took that out because it's, it's sort gross. of like, I mean... <laughs> Well, there were a lot of people that were like, oh, man, I wish I could have seen that. Like, I saw some responses that were like, oh, I really wish that scene was included. But then it's like, Payment just got this brand new body. Why yeah. would he defile it? Like, it, that yeah. didn't really make sense to me. And I feel like if you were to put that in, it would feel like they were doing it purely for shock value. And I am very much against that. Did you do any um, research, like, on Payment and, like, what the point of him was? I didn't. Okay, so... Uh, what I learned was the uh, so Payman, like you said, was a real demon. Like he he was yeah. someone that the the director like he really that that's a real demon. But this theme of beheading is not mm-hmm. true. I don't I don't know if you I don't remember if you said that already. Yeah, but, um, I did. I think I'm also kind of against that. I think what happened was there was a fear of disrespect for like uh, history or religion or facts. I think, I think maybe the director was afraid to uh, match it completely for fear of disrespecting it. Um, But like, I almost wish he would have committed. Like I almost, I feel like that would have made it much more scary if we came back out of this movie, realizing that every single thing, you know, was accurate. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. 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 Well, no, I'm, I'm glad that we didn't just watch a how to for summoning <laughs> a real demon, but, um, this is true. Yes. Yeah. I like, I understand what you mean though. It would have been, it would have been like extra sort of really scary to be like, wow, we, we actually did just watch that happen realistically. I'm not like up on my demonology, but like, I don't know what, uh, you went to Bible school for 12 yeah. years, so 14 years. How many years? Four, well, uh, K4, K5, and then first through 12th grade. So. I don't know what that means, but I just... Oh, kin- like preschool, kindergarten, and then first through 12th grade. K4, K5. I've never heard of it. 
I've never heard of it like that. Oh, it was like kindergarten, you're four years old, kindergarten, oh. you're five years old, and then first through 12th gotcha. grade. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. Um, but <laughs> you didn't you practice uh, uh, demon summoning in <laughs> No, no, unfortunately. That, it's not covered. That came later. Um, <laughs> no, I – so like I don't know if there's a demon that specifically was all about cutting people's heads off. So I, I don't I don't know if that's if that's the case, but I do know that supposedly you know he's he's meant to like bring gifts to people and bring riches and the people you know so yeah uh, riches and intelligence and and wealth yeah that's yeah it. there was an AMA which I believe is ask me anything yeah I've ne- so it I've never heard of that term until like a month ago and I feel like now I'm seeing it everywhere I don't know oh if wow that's a yeah thing. But anyway, um, there was an AMA thread on Reddit um, where it was uh, the the director, like the director was directly responding to questions about hereditary. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, which is where I got a lot of my kind of information. Because I, which is, I honestly would love to seek out more of those kinds of threads. I really wish a lot more directors would do that because it was really interesting to see him like directly respond to these people, and it was it was really fascinating. Um, but one of the questions that someone asked was, did anything spooky happen on the set? And he said, yes. Um, Alex Wolf, who I'm not actually, do you know who that is? Peter. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Alex Wolf told me not to say the name of William Shakespeare's Scottish play out loud because <laughs> of some superstitious theater legend. Do you, are you familiar with this legend? Yeah. I'm not. I didn't know about this. What? What is, is it? I saw someone respond Macbeth. Is that what it is? You're not supposed you, to say Okay, it. yeah. You don't say Macbeth in a theater. It's bad luck. I was not aware. I'm so they, they call it – like they have different names for it, but they never – it's just not good luck to say Macbeth in a the theater. It's just like only in the theater you're not supposed you to. You know what? I mean I I don't know where in, in this movie there's a theater, but maybe it's like on a movie set too. I don't know. It never came up on any of the movie sets I've been on. Well, it must be a movie set because um, he responded, I smugly announced the name and then one of our lights burst during the shooting of the following scene, which I thought was like, I thought that was kind of cute that and is, funny and, and yeah, interesting. So. That is really funny. So when Annie was walking out of the craft store and sees Joan in the parking lot mm-hmm. and as she's talking about the seance and everything, the camera follows them in between two cars, but as it does – you see the trunk of Joan's, Joan's car, car. Yeah. and you see that she's buying chalkboards. Oh, really? And if you think about it, she uses a chalkboard for, for the, the seance. seance. Yeah. And if this really is just all a bullshit attempt to get her to summon Charlie and then be able to take over Peter and her grandson really, you know, didn't really die, if that's all fake – then the chalkboard that she's she like, references. oh, this is this is my grandson's chalkboard. This is his. It wasn't his. It wasn't his chalkboard. It was something she had just bought at the craft store. Right, right. Isn't yeah, that no, cool? That is a good point. Yep. I would never pick that up. But I like somebody <laughs> mentioned that on. I don't even know where I saw that, and I was like, whoa, that is really interesting. And I went back and and just like looked at that scene, and I'm like, yeah, there are chalkboards in there, and it's like. You know, if she's talking to anybody, maybe I don't know if she was talking to Payman or whatever, because there's multiple chalkboards. I don't know how how uh, Payman in this cult interacts, 
like it's it's really kind of interesting how it all worked. Yeah, yeah. There were so many subtle signs that I caught later during my research that was talking about uh, like there were so many triangles in the movie, uh, particularly on the floor of the the mom's old bedroom. Um, there was one in Joan's uh, room at one point, and you know, there's the big a big discussion about how you know when you're summoning demons or when you're worshiping them, the triangle needs to face a certain way. Um, yeah, like you would you would summon the demon into the triangle and be able to sort of like use them. Right. Or they would sort of be bent to your will, and you would you would tell yeah. them, yeah, I've read the, about I've that too. Read something about the the insignia, uh, payments insignia is like four loops that face. I think it's west. I think it's west. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know what? I think I watched this in a video. Just her saying at the very beginning, like my mom would be like kind of suspicious, or I'm kind of suspicious about yeah. how many people there are today yep, here yep. today. And it's like, of course, she was like the leader of this cult, you know? Yeah, and she she even said, um, uh, "So great to see so many, something like so many unfamiliar faces." Like it was very clear yeah. that these people were strangers to her. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah, and that's like like I said, um. In the very beginning, like every single detail in this movie is spelled out for us. It is it is so obvious from the very beginning, but we just have to like put it all together. And I think I think that's the charm of this movie is that there there are so many of those things, but it takes so many times to watch them in order to like catch on to what's really happening. It's it's really yeah. sly, and it's I, I like that. I think that's really clever. When, when there's like a lot of effort put into crafting a story and it has a rewatchability factor when a movie where a 13 year old gets her head knocked (laughs) off has rewatchability. Yeah. Then you're doing something right. Right. I'm yeah, I'm, I'm ready to um, hear you sort of like lay this out for me. Oh, oh, one more thing. And we talked about doing this and I was expecting something maybe a little bit deeper, but the words Satany, Zazas, uh, Liftoge, Pandemonium. These these were the words that were scratched. They're they, they kind of flashed throughout the movie. They were like etched onto, the, onto yeah. Charlie's walls. Um, and I think they were rumored to have been left there by uh, the grandmother. Um, yeah. Yeah, they were kind of these mysterious words. But yeah, go ahead, define them, because I'm curious as well. I looked them all up and just found a bunch of long-winded bullshit and history and stuff. And basically, (laughs) Satany and Zazas are necromancy-related summoning words. Yeah. And Liftoge Pandemonium essentially means being open up for all demons to come in. And yeah. 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 So it's like, I don't know what I was expecting, but I was like not about to uh, read you guys like three pages of boring (laughs) nonsense. Cause that was like one of the things we had talked about when we stopped. We're like, Oh, we're going to look up the words. And yeah, I was like, part of of me wishes, part of me wishes they were a little bit more profound. Um, cause they were so like blatant and there was yeah. so much mystery surrounding them. And then to learn that they're just kind of, Oh, they're just like summoning things. Like, I wish there was more to it than that. But, um, when she, wh- when Joan was outside of the, I guess, playground or whatever at, um, at Peter's school, she actually said some of those words. So it's very clear that they were, um, like summoning yeah. spells, I guess. Um, and maybe that's just another one of those clues, like another one of those things. Like if you buy any, any reason happen to know what any of these words mean you'll know that you know the name of the game is summoning a demon because like the first i had no idea what this movie was about i thought it might be ghosts like i thought there might be ghosts in the house or something and then the little girl gets her head knocked off and i'm like 
Okay, maybe it's about like grief and trauma because I mean the term hereditary, I still sort of feel like that is more about trauma and mental illness. Mental right? illness, yes. Yeah. Well, I think see, I when I looked into this, I was like, oh my god, this this uh title is actually perfect because it's a great combination of both of those things. Because in this movie, you're really not sure if this is a mental illness thing yeah um and, and like maybe it was both i mean she she they said that she struggled with dementia to the or the grandmother struggled with dementia till the end of her life um and uh there's there's concerns that you know the son had it and then maybe um you like these weird things are happening to annie and and she you know maybe she has it and it's kind of like is it mental illness or is it something more and i think hereditary works in that regard, but it also works in the fact that like this demon is also kind of being passed down from generation to generation. So it's really, I think it's both of those things melted so perfectly. Like, I don't think there could have been any other title for this movie. I thought that was so, so cool. It it definitely sort of makes sense once you think about it, which is in my opinion, like the best titles that are like, that are, uh, ambiguous at the beginning mm-hmm. and okay yeah uh, summarize this shit so this this episode's not six hours long if you like erase everything that you know like and start fresh this is essentially how the story goes there's this woman named ellen who is annie's mother and she's a part of this cult that worships this demon named payman and in exchange for a, a blood uh, related male host payman would offer wealth and riches and we know that joan was a part of this cult as well like they were good friends uh ellen dies but the cult is still very much intact, and they even attend uh, Ellen's funeral. So there's Charlie, who is Annie's daughter. She's a little bit odd and eccentric, and we know from exposition that Annie's mother, uh, Ellen, latched onto Charlie because she couldn't have her firstborn, Peter. This attachment was to sort of like uh, install or offer like this body to payment. So the demon is inside Charlie from like the very beginning. And I think when uh, when Annie was talking about how, oh, she even wanted to feed you, I think it was literally like the mother was feeding her daughter this this demon. So You she, also saw the, that painting or that, that, that little miniature when she had sculpture. her. Yeah, she's like breastfeeding yeah. her granddaughter. Yeah, super, super weird. Um, the problem is, though, uh, Payman wants a male host. He wants like a male body. He prefers to be in a male body instead of a female one. So this entire movie is basically a a game plan or a blueprint that this cult constructed to allow Payman to receive Peter as a host. So that's like that's what this movie's all about. Yeah. So Payman's in Charlie, and someone plants a deer on the road that makes. Peter swerve into the telephone pole with that has payments insignia carved onto it. That's how we know that this was planned somehow. How mm-hmm. this cult knew that she would have an allergic reaction uh, or have her head out the window for any reason at all for this to even happen is unclear to me. I don't know. Maybe that was payments thing. Maybe he had some involvement. Like my only sort of guess at that was that they knew that payment was in Charlie and had somewhat control. Right, right. So that he could go and make her eat that cake and that she would have the allergic reaction. Maybe. I don't know if that's a stretch, but we'll I, see. I would I would believe that's that's sort of if, if someone were to ask me my my best opinion, I would say that. Um 
<laughs> side note, I think it's really funny, and it I feel like this was intentional because there's no way that it wasn't. The scene where there's like just this obscene amount of nuts on the table, and this girl is holding the knife and she's like just furiously furiously chopping these these nuts on this table. It almost seemed like sped up or kind of like parodied or comical in a way. And it was like it seemed really strange, but it was like a, who makes a cake at a party like this? Who's like, I'm going to make a cake in during this whole thing. and be During like, the party. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, who needs all of these nuts? So maybe Payman was involved somehow. Maybe he he made these kids like suddenly crave chocolate cake with nuts. Who knows? Who knows? So back to the summary. Uh, Payman is now kind of left to seek out another host um, along with the help of this cult. So the cult kind of manufactures a way to ease this family down the path of complete chaos. I think that's really the point here is that payment is trying to literally rip this family apart. So there's no interference. There's no, there's no way that he can't get to Peter. Um, and I think this, this plays a lot to Annie's character. I think she has several shifts in this movie. She's a mother of two. She's the wife of a therapist. Um, and at first she's a skeptic. I feel like she's, a pretty lonely woman in her own family. I think in the beginning, she claims that she feels like she's blamed unjustly. Um, and maybe through her form of art, like her art form is a way to feel like she's in control of her family by making models and dolls of them, even when she isn't in control. Um, like, I, I feel like that's sort of a big defense mechanism for her. Maybe that's how she expresses herself. So along comes Joan, and she's at first introduced as a friend, and like Annie, I think the audience immediately trusts Joan when we first see her. I know I did, um, and it's only when the seance happens with Joan that people are like, oh, something's not right here. Something something is uh, is is going on here. I noticed when she had the same – she was like, oh, my mom used to embroider those rugs. I was like – Joan's bad. I don't even know why or how, but Joan's bad. Yeah, yeah something's wrong. Um, but yeah, it turns out, obviously, Joan has been uh, behind this plan from the very beginning. As we realized that she was in photos with Ellen, she's wearing the same insignia. So like, she's behind all of this kind of stuff. So basically, the seance uh, that they do in Annie's living room is meant and needed to bring like Charlie slash Payman back. And it's used, I think, as a way to unsettle Annie or even possibly like trick her. Um, it's pretty clear that she's distraught from her daughter's death. I mean, we see her reaction the morning after it happens. She's stressed out about her marriage, which is clear when she gets the phone call from her husband. And she's like, don't you hang up on me, that whole scene. Um, she sees a model of uh, and, and, and there's a very strong reaction with the husband when he sees the, the model of the accident that she did of the beheading. Um, so there's some, there's some rift there with her husband. She's resistant with her son as per the dinner table scene. She has a gallery to finish and is constantly being prodded by these people to like, to, to get updates on top of everything that's happened. Like she lost her mother. She lost her daughter. She's really not having a good time. So the seance is a way out for her i think she saw the seance saw that it worked and was kind of like okay maybe amidst maybe there is some peace amidst this chaos and for the first time throughout the movie when remember when she's waking up peter and she's like i have to show you something i feel like that's the first time she ever smiles in the movie that's the first time she's ever like excited in the movie um 
She's like, I just contacted my dead daughter and I need you to see this. So I'm, I, so you know, I'm not going crazy. Like, I know you think I'm kind of off the hinges, but let me prove to you that I am not crazy. And ultimately, as we see, it's something that is turned against her. Um, it brings back payment, but then she has this journey of discovery, which begins with her finding that Charlie's notebook is drawing itself. This is where she's kind of like, okay, there are other powers here, but they're ultimately not good. And this leads to the scene where she uh, allegedly is pulling off Peter's head while he's sleeping. And she's like, okay, this has gone too deep. Don't tell your father, but I'm going to fix this. And that's when she tries to burn the notebook and realize she can't without burning herself. So then she finds the photos. She knows that Joan is in on all of it. She discovers the dead body. And then she has a moment of like deep, deep self-regret. And she pleads and pleads with her husband that uh, to, to, to throw this book in the fire so that she can kind of sacrifice herself to fix her family. And it backfires. Um, <laughs> so uh, Payman kind of uses this to lead Annie to isolate Peter, make him jump out the window, and finally like lead him to his place of worship. So that like that pretty much summarized the whole thing. I know that was very long winded, but um, I think it's very clear that Payman was like this. This whole thing was a puppet show. This whole thing was meant to pull apart a family, to isolate one member of them to ultimately, you know, win, win, you know, the sacrifice and win all these riches. And, and they did in the end and it's unfortunate, but damn, it makes for a pretty disturbing movie. I appreciate you going through it beat by beat like that, because now what I'm realizing is, is that I can sort of believe all of that. My, my only issue is that it just seems like a lot when it could have been a lot simpler. And why is it so complicated? Because it's a what? A movie. Yeah. So I need to shut up and like no. that. that <laughs> no. no, I mean like I, I'm literally, I was like, I remember I was sitting here just being like, do I not like this movie as much as I thought I did? Because it's so complicated for no reason, but it's like we get a good movie. We get a, a very intricate layer, detailed, beautiful, dark movie. And the fact that it's maybe a little convoluted here and there does not take away from where we end up, in my opinion. Very few movies, if any, are perfect. I will give you credit. The pacing in this movie was a little bit off. Maybe that was to create some dissonance and some kind of uh, discomfort with the audience. Um, and there were also a lot of things that I thought were maybe red herrings that were sort of trying to intentionally throw you off, um, which I don't respect. I kind of don't like that. Um, so like, I, th I think, I think you're valid. I, I, the, the storyline may have some holes. I, I completely agree with you there, but I think the shock value of this movie and the way that it creates such intense moments, I think is unique yeah. and it kind of makes up for those in my opinion i can understand if someone hates this movie i saw a lot of negative stuff during my research um even more positive but it's i, I don't think you'd be alone in in critiquing this movie in in a more constructive way yeah so like i totally i totally get that this movie has an 89 percent on rotten tomatoes from critics hey. a 64 percent from audiences and then when you go to cinema score, it's got a D plus. So it's very, very polarizing. Wow. Oh yeah, for right? sure. A lot of people can respect the craft, but it's not a crowd mm -hmm. pleaser. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's not a movie that you walk out of being like, hell yeah. 
it's got incredible performances. I mean, yeah. again, we've talked about how Tony Collette has given an Oscar worthy performance and the entire cast around her did amazing as well. Ari Aster's a very talented director and I respect the hell out of a movie that will go to these places and completely subvert all of our expectations when it comes to what they will and will not do because you never expect, you know, the little girl yeah. to, to die that violently. Yeah. You never expect yeah. the main character to just on screen behead herself. And mm-hmm. like, it's like, where, what are we doing? What are we, you know, it's <laughs> I think, crazy. I think you can handle it. It's worth it. It is. I would say, yeah, absolutely. It's worth it. Even if you can't handle it, you should still go just to experience that. I yeah, like, I don't think I could handle. I don't think I handled it very well. No, like you, you nailed it perfectly because, like, I, I, I really don't ever want to watch this movie again. But I can consider it one of my favorite movies. Like, it's, it's. I just really loved it. I thought it was brilliant. But one last thing, I guess, before we we go, uh, there was a lot of questions about Midsummer during the AMA on Reddit, and literally, he he was you could tell he was being he was being very intentionally vague about it because people were like oh well like what's what's it about what's it about and he would always answer the same way he would say it's about a breakup and i've seen the trailer for that and i don't quite rem- I, like i can't really think <laughs> of of like i know i can't remember a plot that i got from the trailer yeah, um, yeah. but apparently it's it, a breakup story and it's going to be really awesome and i'm i'm so excited about his next project so that that'll be it Another the trailer adventure. the trailer's one of those things that I purposely was like, I'm not going to dissect this. I don't want to look into it because, you know, going back and watching the Hereditary trailer and even from the beginning, like uh, when Gabriel Byrne's character gets lit on fire, that is in the trailer. So like I am – I think I'm done with Midsummer trailers. I'm just like I, – I think I just – now I know that – if if Ari Aster's name's on it, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it. And <laughs> no, that I'm glad you brought that point up. That's good. Well, good, good. All right, so um, thanks for listening, kids. Yeah, children, children who watched Hereditary. Thank you for listening. Yeah, <laughs> it's bedtime. <laughs> Ugh, I swear that movie stays with you. I bought a payday from the gas station this morning. Couldn't even eat it. Trauma. I'm not even allergic to peanuts. Anyway, thank you for sticking with us through episode 11 of Take 3, a movie podcast. It was produced and edited by Jordan Sato and Nick Crawford. We want to encourage you to check us out on all social media. Subscribe on iTunes. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Listen, we love doing this and we want to keep doing this. So every time that you hit that share button, leave a review, leave a comment, like something, it just really means the world to us. Thank you again for listening. I'm going to go pray.